You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. I'm here in the New York Gallery of Les en Lumineur today with Bill Vokley, William Vokley, but Bill, as I'm sure you most of you know him, uh, who was curator at the Morgan Library for 50 years, having retired in 2017, just two years ago. And you may know all of you a little bit of Bill's background did many exhibits at the Morgan uh, during his time there, written uh, countless articles, a long CV, many with great titles, Liberale de Verona's North Wind Unraveled, Coins, Muscles, and a Crab is another favorite of mine, and oversaw numerous exhibitions. So without much ado, I'd like to turn it over to Bill by maybe asking him a few questions about how he got his first job at the Morgan, or even how he became interested in manuscripts. Bill. Well, I guess I should start at the beginning. I mean, who would have thought that a little boy growing up in Shoetown, Endicott, New York, would have ended up being a curator of manuscripts at the Morgan Library? I certainly didn't, uh, but the, what happened between then and uh, getting the job, of course, is, is also part of the story. I originally studied um, mathematics, and I got my BA in mathematics. I didn't know that. See, yes. Secret, secrets secret. unveiled. <laughs> uh, and I had to take, uh, you know, as a science major, dreaded humanities courses. And so I thought, well, maybe I should take uh, an introductory survey of art history, which I did. And it turned out that that transformed my life. Suddenly, there was all of this humanitarian interest, history, what people did, how, what they painted, and what we could learn from art. So I went to speak to my guidance counselor, who was absolutely horrified. Uh, and he convinced me that I should uh, complete my degree in mathematics, which I did. So I went to what is now Binghamton University for another year, took all of the art history courses that were offered, and then I boldly made application to Columbia University because in my view, uh, they then had really one of the superior uh, faculties. Were your parents um, scientists? Is that what, why you were in mathematics? Or did they support your switch to art history? Well, my father actually uh, and mother, uh, they grew up in the Black Forest area of Germany, and my father was trained as a cobbler, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, and so when they went to Endicott, which was the shoe town, hmm. uh, Endicott Johnson Shoes, that you know, seemed to be uh, a smart thing to do. So no, uh, they really had nothing to do with my career or my career change, uh, except that they were against it because <laughs> they thought there was no money you know, in art history. Well, nevertheless, they came to very much appreciate, uh, uh, in view of my later uh, achievements, uh, that decision. That's interesting. Um, so I was. So you finished at Binghamton, and then, like, what were you? Well, yes, going and to then I, I was interviewed, believe it or not, by Edith Parada at Columbia, and she apparently said, "Who was this young kid and all these ambitious plans he has?" Anyway, I got accepted, uh, and I was going to become a, a professor teaching Northern Renaissance because I was very attracted to the hidden symbolism of the paintings. That's what got me into art history. It was Northern Renaissance painting, Jan van Eyck de Bruegel. And when they got into all of the allegories, the hidden symbolism, that did it. Panofsky. Panofsky, yes. Bible. 
Panofsky, ENT, as friends of mine like to call it, early Netherlandish painting. Right. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, uh, because Panofsky, of course, had the idea that isn't necessarily followed anymore, that somehow the achievements of Flemish painting came off the pages of manuscript illumination. So I said, well, I'd better learn something about that. And as it happened, John Plummer was an adjunct professor at Columbia, and he was giving this seminar on books of hours. So, so I took that. Uh, and then he gave another uh, seminar on manuscripts, and I took that. That was really about the only thing I had to do with Northern Renaissance, because they never taught a course on Northern Renaissance while I was there. I was misguided by their elaborate catalog, which lists every course that they ever gave or would give. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was looking forward to uh, taking the, this course by Julius Held, which of course he never gave. But I did end up uh, being his graduate assistant at Columbia. And he uh, impressed me with one statement. He said that he would never trust a curator who didn't collect. Really? How yes. interesting. Uh, and so that's what and of, it's true. Julius Held collected drawings himself, didn't and paintings, he? paintings, all sorts I of, see. yes, and sculpture, yes. So this was a, a For very... For those who, who don't know who Julius Held is, he's a really famous scholar of Baroque, uh, Dutch Baroque And, and especially Rubens, that right. was one of his... Flemish uh, his and Dutch things. Baroque. And in fact, he is, the, and I still can't get over this, he wrote what is probably the longest review of an art book in the history of the art bulletin. And that was his 30-page review of Erwin Panofsky's early Netherlanders painting. I see. So all these things sort of uh, interconnected. And of course, I came to Columbia at a fantastic time, uh, thanks to the unfortunate uh, episodes of World War II. Many of the greatest scholars fled, and they went to New York, and they went to Columbia and built up that department. So there was Julius Held, Rudolf Wittkover, Meyer Shapiro. So they really had a superior uh, faculty at that time. Uh, and I think the other professor who was very important for me was Meyer Shapiro, uh, because he taught this course on the methodology of art history. And that opened up my eyes to how to look at an artwork. What kind of resources do you go to? Anyway. Well, it probably wasn't evident what you were going to do after graduate school at the time. I'm sure everyone is interested. Uh, many of my students are in uh, apply for jobs. I'm sure everyone is interested in how you got this um, wonderful job at the Morgan Library. Well, I should say that it was a job that transformed my life. I would never in a million years have thought that I was going to end up there because my idea was to become like my models, an art history professor. Well, as I said, uh, uh, I did take these two courses from John Plummer, who was at the time the curator at the Morgan, and there came a time, he was sort of by himself, uh, when he secured funds to have an, a curatorial assistant. Hmm. So uh, it was as a curatorial assistant that I came in, and when I started working there, of course, I was as green as could be. I mean, in those days, you hadn't handled manuscripts, you you know, hadn't done a lot with original paintings. Up in Endicott, New York, there was no art museum. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this opened up a whole new um, uh, world for me. So once I got in the door and said, well, my goodness, working as a curator, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of the manuscript world. All the great scholars come in, and I knew them all, met them in the reading room, and had conversations with them. And, of course, my instinct to teach and to spread knowledge was a very big part through exhibitions, through curatorial tours, through seminars that I met with in Columbia, NYU, Princeton, all over that people would bring. Yeah, you, you mentioned exhibitions, and I know you, um, you were the spearhead for many, many exhibitions. Do you remember your first exhibition you ever mounted at the Morgan? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, actually, it wasn't exactly my exhibition, uh, but it was an exhibition of the collection formed by William S. Glazier, uh, which was at the time the most important extensive collection of medieval manuscripts, you know, of a... In private hands. Uh, in private hands and of a, an American collector. So that's, you know, how I started. And, of course, John Plummer. Uh, you know, wrote the labels, uh, so I had to, you know, look at the labels, see if there were any typos, help with the arrangement of the show. 
And in those days, we tied down our own manuscripts. You know, you strap them down, you support them, and so forth. Now everything has become so uh, partitioned that uh, in my last show, I wasn't able to install anything. Now you've got the conservators, the art handlers, and they do all this. So uh, a department that checks that your labels are correct. Yes, um, and, and we have, uh, and we, you know, we have editors. I, in in those early days, I could actually type out my own labels and, and did so in a number of cases. But I must say that having a copy editor uh, go over them that that was actually very helpful because you know they made them more concise. They corrected errors and did things like that, but it was a whole new way of doing, doing things. So that's, that's how I got in the Morgan and I uh, stayed there. But it was really my interest in sharing the collections with everyone because I knew how difficult it was to get information on manuscripts. And if you're doing a term paper, you need photos. And for students, you know, photos at that time, you, you may remember yourself, you paid 10 or $12 for a black and white. So if you're ordering 10 of them, all of a sudden you're spending a fortune just getting the data. And I can imagine, as you worked on the Dutch Bibles, you must have had hundreds of pictures that you had to collect together. Right, so right. you would appreciate that. So my aim from the beginning was to make everything available. Uh, and that's my own personal view. If someone wants my opinion on something, I, you know, I give it and I give them advice. I'm, that's mm -hmm. part of my role as an educator. So the first thing that I did was to make uh, Xerox copies of all of the uh, descriptions of the manuscripts were, which were kept in the manuscript folders. They weren't available in the reading room. So all of that stuff then came into the reading room. And of course then uh, and, uh, uh, the possibility came of putting our catalog online, Corsair. I endorsed that enthusiastically. So we had all of that. Uh, Someone, you should um, explain to people who may not know what Corsair is, why it has this odd name, yes. how it, what it is, basically. Right. Well, uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful, because this was a time that the internet was coming up, and you had everything on computer, everything, you know, could be put uh, online. So uh, we came up with this idea of putting, at first, short descriptions for each manuscript. Uh, what is it, where was it made, when was it made, for whom was it made, date, and maybe a line of provenance. And I said, well, why not put everything up there? So we had ended up having the short descriptions, and then we uh, co copied all of those lengthy descriptions, so those are all available online. So we had a little competition as to what was this uh, online catalog going to be called. Uh, a competition meaning within the Morgan, within, you all with, suggested yeah, ideas. And so someone, and it was not me, alas, <laughs> uh, came up with the idea of Corsair, which was Morgan's yacht. Wow. So uh, I, of course, uh, took off on that and said, well, on other websites you can go surfing, on Corsair you can go yachting. There, there, yes, yes. So, uh, that, so that's how it started. But then I was trying to get uh, the Index of Christian Art interested. You know, they have the great uh, iconographic index where they analyze everything. This is in Princeton. In Princeton, yeah. right, where they analyze everything. Virgin center, right, so-and-so. Yeah, virgin holding Dove. this. Uh, every ingredient yeah, is yeah. on there. So I was trying to get them, such indexing you know, was out of date for us, and they were the premier place mm -hmm. to do it, to, uh, to do the, more, the whole Morgan collection, and then to put this online. That was a project that took, uh, I think, about a dozen years on my part. Yeah, Corsair. Well, see, I used the Morgan first in 1970, so you had only been there three years. But I remember vividly those black-bound notebooks right. with the notes of every... It was right. so useful. And then Corsair, so that was sort of ahead of its time yes, compared it to other libraries that I used, European libraries. And then Corsair, too, was really ahead of now digitalization. Every, every library has right. digitalization so, yes. projects, but Corsair was early. Yeah, so we were sort of a front runner in that regard. And of course, I was gung-ho uh, to getting all the images up. Mm -hmm. So we've got, I guess, uh, over 60,000 
thousand reproductions of the miniatures. And what many people don't realize is that because those Princeton descriptions were so detailed, you can do amazing word searches. Mm. You can uh, type in pretzels, mm. for example. And, and you get the hours of Catherine of Cleves. Right, but more <laughs> astonishingly, you get uh, three uh, manuscripts that were made in Salzburg in the 11th century that have pretzels on the Last Supper table. Really? Beautiful pretzels. And this ties in with practice. Uh, so I had to, of course, uh, uh, delve into the history of the pretzel. There. Uh, and it turns out that the pretzel was a Lenten food and that the monks ate pretzels during the season of Lent. So if you look very carefully at one or two of these illustrations, you see that there's a half a pretzel on the table. Jesus uh, is giving the other half to Judas. Really? So he's sort of doing his penance before he does his deed. This is in an 11th century manuscript? 11th century Salzburg uh, uh, lectionary. Which right. people can now see by searching Corsair you on the Morgan site. Right, so you can look up things like specta uh, spectacles. While I was working on one of my dubious manuscripts, I, I observed that there were turtles in the borders. And I said, gee, I wonder if there are manuscripts, or is this an indication that the thing might be bogus? Well, much to my surprise and delight, uh, there are about four or five books of hours with turtles. So, uh, but you can also look for generic things. By the way, great for anyone teaching art history. They can look up flames. Any description that has the word flame or flames in it will produce a, ser a wide series of pictures, destructions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, this kind of thematic search possibility was an amazing uh, Right, aspect. and it's a way... People who listen to our podcasts are interested in learning about manuscripts. It's probably a way that they can search the Morgan site with their own interests in mind and learn something unusual about manuscripts. Yes. Well, I'm very glad that we're doing this because it gives me a chance to alert people to, to the fact that they can do word searches right. on the images because this is an amazing tool. Right. And doesn't exist in other search programs like Gallica, which is the National Library of France's um, uh, digital platform. Well, that's great, that's interesting. I knew that Corsair, of course, was one of your favorite projects and it has really changed the way we can search. I wonder, um, you must have a favorite exhibition that you worked on too, um, do you? Uh, or were there just so many it's hard to choose? Well, I think there were some thematic ones that were uh, ra rather striking. And then there were some that were landmarks. Of course, uh, the, the, one of the great landmarks that I was in, uh, very much involved with was an exhibition on the Spanish forger right. uh, done in 1978. And that was, believe it or not, the first exhibition in a major museum ever devoted to a forger. Right, the first one-man show the per, the of first a forger. Of a one, and that brought all kinds of interesting things. I know that the then director was horrified at this because he had to be convinced that we should do a show of forgeries, and that was Charles Reiskamp. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Hilton Kramer was the no-nonsense art critic of the, right, New York for the New York Times. And he was afraid that Hilton Kramer was going to say something to the effect, well, the Morgans got all these beautiful originals. Why are they showing this stuff? Well, his uh, apprehensions were false. He absolutely loved the show and called him a very gifted uh, uh, medievalist you know, of the, mm. of the 19th century. So he loved it. And, and it turned out to be one uh, of our most popular exhibitions ever. And of course, this uh, led me to an interest in forgeries and this uh, reminds me of one of my first uh, uh, somewhat ex embarrassing <coughs> experiences when I came to the Morgan. As I said, I was quite green at that time. And this woman had brought in two miniatures, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of them. So I asked John Plummer, uh, what is this? And in a snap, he said, oh, they're by the Spanish forger, as if he was a well-known entity. And then, then I found out that Belle de Costa Green had given him that name. The jump. And you should probably tell people that Bella de Costa Green was Morgan's personal assistant, assistant. buyer, curator. Right, um, and then she became, uh, uh, in 1924, when we became the Pierpont Morgan Library, the first director. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so she. So she is the. Isn't it correct that she is the person who originally unmasked the Spanish forger as not a painter of the 15th century, but a painter of the 19th? Or not? Do I have that right? More, more or less. Uh, <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, there are always there are people who obviously recognized these things were sort of questionable be before. But she's the one that nicknamed him the Spanish forger, so she plays very large in this, and she collected examples, which John Plummer then augmented, and then I sort of took over the job of cataloging Spanish Forger's works. Now there are over 400, believe it or wow. not, which makes him one of the most prolific of, of all the Forgers. Is it a him or, um, well, of course it could be a her, but what I was really thinking of, 400 is a lot, and this was probably not his day job. Could it have been a workshop? I, I think you're absolutely right. There's no way he could have done them all. And there are stylistic differences in them, and I, I think he certainly had... Uh, Help. But what he did, in effect, was to you know, really take over the forgery market in the early 20th century in Paris, which was the main center of distribution. So that got me interested. You know, and we know it's Paris, don't we? Because um, I've worked a little myself on the Spanish forgery, though nothing like you, that some of the, um, some of the works have uh, French or Parisian newspapers bound into the frames. Yes, as the, as the mounting. Of, yeah. Yes. Uh, and also, he appealed to the French uh, market because of the very French subject matter. You know, there's a famous opera that was done in the late 19th century by Lalo called the La, Les Rois Dix. Uh, and this is the story, it's a French Breton uh, legend that wouldn't have been known to anyone else. And he mm -hmm. did a triptych based on this, this story. So that there were a lot of French-related uh, themes and including one of them, uh, which wasn't necessarily French, the Hunter the Unicorn Annunciation, he gives the angel's wings the colors of the French flag, for example. Oh, really? Yes. That's wonderful. Uh, and then he, took a, he did a takeoff on Monet's Olympia, for example. So he was very I much see. aware of uh, mm -hmm. what was going on. And, and I guess one of the important things, too, is that when you do the provenance searches, most of the ones that have records of acquisition point to Paris as the center of distribution. I think there are other, uh, didn't you do a really important exhibit on the Bible, too, um, on the Old Testament? Isn't that you? Didn't yes, you do oh, yes. Well, uh, one of our greatest manuscripts, one of my favorites, uh, is bibliographically a nightmare because it, every time someone publishes it or does a facsimile, they put a different name on it. You know, they call it the Shah Abbas Bible. Then it becomes the Crusader Bible. Then John Plummer did a facsimile where it was called Old Testament Miniatures. Or the Old Testament Picture Bible. No. Right. So uh, are, are these all the same thing or what? Well, they are all the same thing. There was a wonderful facsimile being done, and the pages were so badly uh, rebound that they crinkled, you know, when, when you opened it. So we took it apart. Uh, so when it was a part, uh, we thought, well, this would be a wonderful opportunity to allow the public to see all the pages. Uh, uh, well, yes, most, most of the pages, because some of them have pictures on the back. Uh, so this then transformed into uh, an exhibition, and there, there was some very uh, interesting research that was done uh, by me, in which I hope... Uh, I've convincingly shown that it was indeed made for St. Louis because there, there were disputes. Uh, you would have thought that the French would have seized on, on this super provenance, but actually a number of the French scholars thought, no, it's uh, made in the north of France and it wasn't made for Louis, but I think it's now clear, at least to me, that it was. <laughs> and people can consult this not only on Corsair, but on this um, large facsimile, too, isn't it? It's a yes, quite... Yes, it's, it's an quite, actual... Yes, yeah. right. I mean, this is, of course, one of the problems of manuscript exhibits that, you know, you can open a manuscript to one page, but when they're disbound for conservation reasons, I think the Catherine of Cleves exhibit was another example. You can put, and the Belzer at the Cloisters or at the Met, you can put all the miniatures on the wall, 
during this um, window of time between disbinding and rebinding. Yes, well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, uh, Sandra, because uh, it uh, brings up another thing that I'm very happy with at the Morgan, and that is the, uh, these online ca uh, exhibition catalogs that we mm -hmm. have done. So those are all in high res, so you don't have to spend uh, 20000 plus to get the facsimile of Catherine of Cleves. Every page is uh, on this online exhibition, and you can zoom in on all these. So in a way, it's better than the facsimile, because you know right. when you do a facsimile, you go through a printing process. Right. When you've got the uh, electronic image, you can zoom in on that marvelously. So for many of our recent uh, exhibitions, we have these online. Yeah, people may not realize they may that not they realize can that. look at exhibits online. Didn't you do one on the hunt, too, on hunting? And, yes, uh, the online? medieval hunt. And, yeah. and, and I also did, and this is online, um, uh, believe it or not, the first exhibition ever celebrating our collection of Islamic and Indian miniatures. And you can do wonders looking at those in, in great detail. That was the first show ever given to the collection in 100 years. Really? And that, that's online. And the, the way to find it is you go to the Morgan website, because this is important, because I, I, of course, I, I never know how to find anything myself. Yeah. But if you go to the Morgan, you click on exhibitions, mm -hmm. and then you scroll down, and there's a category called online exhibitions. Wow. And then you'll get them all. That sounds easy enough. Well, no, that's easy enough. Hopefully, but, but, many but you have of, to know to click on no, exhibition. No, no, exactly. Right, hopefully, right. many of our so, listeners so that will was, uh, instantly of, go uh, and do uh, that. Certainly, one of my favorite exhibitions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I wondered, um, of course, as a curator, uh, you're also in charge of acquisitions, um, and fifty years is a long time at the Morgan. I wondered if you wanted to say something about maybe the most interesting acquisition or the most unusual acquisition during that time? I'm sure there were many, but is there something that stands out in your mind? Uh, oh, there are a couple, uh, and of course, you've already mentioned one of them, <laughs> or, at least, or at least half of one of them, uh, and that's, the, of course, the Hours of Catherine of Cleves. Oh, you were there, of course. I, so I was there, it. and that was sort of my, my middle period, maybe not quite. Uh, but this, the story of the Catherine of Cleves, of course, is one of these horror stories that a dealer named Techner, uh, about the middle of the 19th century, said he could make twice as much money by splitting up a manuscript and selling two parts, each seemingly having the uh, parts rearranged so that they both look more or less complete because our because it was such a richly illuminated right, manuscript because, yes, to begin because, with. Yeah, because there were dozens and dozens of miniatures, and of course one hadn't reached the point where we're doing all this kind of textual picture research that we do now. So, you know, and even then they called missiles books of ours. Right. There was a general lack of specificity in these areas. Not any. And and where did they where did the two volumes go after Techner then? Um, uh, they, uh, one went to one Roth, went to Pierpont Morgan. No. Uh, eventually, they did, uh, uh, but the, uh, and I should put out uh, this notice. They were separated, though. They were for... separated. However, there were some. There were about maybe uh, almost a dozen miniatures that didn't fit. Those are probably out there, so people should keep their eyes open. Wow. Because there's still there's still a, there's still a even uh, in spite of all the, the miniatures that are there, there are still some that are missing. And so the story... Um... So, so they went to two different collections, and one came up uh, when John Palmer, of course, was there, and he looked at it, and, he, uh, and it was billed as the Hours of Catherine of uh, Cleves, and one had known another, the other part. I uh, said, oh, another manuscript. So uh, he, we, uh, Fred Adams bought that uh, in 1968, I believe, or something like that. And then, uh, much later on, he borrowed the, uh, the other part, which had been in the, uh, acquired by Alistair Bradley Martin, uh, who, in, who bought it from Krauss, uh, who was very unsure uh, about buying it. And Krauss said, well, if you don't like it, you, I buy it back from you. 
Right. Uh, meanwhile, uh, John Plummer had that brought in. He compared the two. Lo and behold, the number of lines was the same. The text box was. And the that same. was when that the um, the Krauss volume. That's much later then. Yes, that was in nineteen seven uh, around nineteen seventy four or something I like see. that. I hmm. see. Uh, and of course, there had been articles by Bone and other Dutch scholars where they said that uh, that Alistair Bradley Martin had promised to give it to the Morgan, the, the second half. Of course, uh, we always thought we had the best half, which was the, <laughs> the one with all the unusual borders you know, right. illustrating the lives of the saints. So anyway, uh, John Plummer convincingly showed you know, the page size was the same. What was missing in the one part was complemented in the other. Uh, so he acquired the second part, too. Uh, and so then uh, we acquired, uh, well, yes, uh, well, Alistair Bradley Martin did not give it to the Morgan Library, as he had told some people, apparently. Uh, but he sold it back to Krauss. So then Krauss uh, offered it to the Morgan. At an appropriate institutional discount, I hope. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> but certainly in terms of today's prices, it, it was a song. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, uh, the story goes that, that there was some question as to how the trustees were going to react to this. Unfortunately, they were all of one voice and said, we must buy it. Uh, and so we did. And that was the same year that uh, uh, Charles Reiskamp bought another of the great manuscripts, and that was the uh, prayer book of Michelino de Basozzo. Right. So at the beginning of his term, he did these two major acquisitions. And that was sort of the end, uh, you know, of, of what one might have called the glory years, because then first-rate manuscripts became exceedingly expensive going into the million-dollar area. Right, but not unfindable. I actually think not one of the great that, things about this story is the 1970s is not that long ago. It isn't and that people long ago. ask me all the time, oh, these must be impossible to find. The medieval manuscript market is drying up. But indeed, there are these treasures that are still out there. You mentioned the pages of Catherine of Cleves that are still lurking still around somewhere. And it, anything is possible at any moment. Um, there are still um, manuscripts in the wild waiting to be discovered. There are, you're absolutely right. Well, that's great about those acquisitions. That's interesting. Yeah, um, so yes, these come up, but we, you know, we have had a chance to buy some of these great manuscripts, but you know, $10 million. I mean, we're talking about the really, really great ones. Right, uh, right. So we, we just you know, aren't in, in, in that. In, in the league right in, now. In that particular yeah. league because we, you know, there are private collectors mm -hmm. that, that I'm sure you're aware of who can plop down that kind of money. Right, right. Uh, and and, yeah. they, and they're, I'm sure they're very good customers to have. Uh, but anyway, so we're sort of out of that market. But we have made uh, three very important acquisitions. However, they were all gifts. So this, you know, causes us to go in different directions that we have to uh, but that's, of course, a way yeah. inst many institutions acquire now is through gifts of donors. Um, yes, but you mentioned, for example, and there's some amusing stories to be told there, uh, our hunting uh, manuscript, yes. the Libre de la Chasse. That, Great manuscript. Well, it's one of the two greatest manuscripts, and, and it's one of the top dozen manuscripts in our collection, but we would never have been able to afford to buy it. And, of course, it was offered to uh, Morgan and Belle de Costa Green, uh, you know, at a ridiculous price. And how did it come to you then? I've forgotten. Yes. Well, anyway, uh, there, there, there was this uh, incredible woman named Clara Peck. Oh, right. Who, who the was Clara a, Peck she, she, Yeah, she was a Clara Peck. She was a horse breeder and won trophies. Uh, and she couldn't stuff her cabinets, you know, with these trophies. So she melted them down and made silver plates out of them. But she was a real uh, character. But she was into, and she was a horse breeder. Uh, so she was into animals and so forth. So John Fleming, uh, who was the heir to the Rosenbach, convinced her to buy, uh, buying it. She says, oh, well, I could never afford to buy anything like that. She says, oh, yes, you can. We have a special price for you. Which, by the way... Cost less than a thoroughbred, probably. Right, right. <laughs> uh, in any case, it was 
far, far, far less than it had been offered to Morgan for, so she bought it. So once she had done that, Belle de Costa Green pursued her, and we did, she actually uh, d did some years later an exhibition on animals in manuscripts, mm -hmm. and so she asked Clara Peck if she could borrow it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was reported that Clara Peck was so moved by how reverentially Belle de Costa Green handled the manuscript that she uh, had decided she was going to give it to the Morgan. Nice. Uh, however, nice story. nobody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Charles Rice Camp tried to, to get her to, um, to, to give it, uh, and he went, she, was, she had a suite at the top of the Hotel Pierre. She was one of the first residents there. Um, uh, tried to convince her, and she uh, loved the Wild West. She loved cowboy stories. <laughs> you know, when she had a big collection of Western paintings, Remington bronzes, and all that kind of stuff, and paperweights, by the way, which she ended up donating to the Corning Museum. So Charles Ricecamp would go up there uh, uh, in this uh, penthouse and read her cowboy stories. Really? Yes, though, of course, he didn't know that uh, Cla uh, Clara Peck had already decided to give it, um, and she did give it. Uh, and it was one of my highlights uh, when I got a call from the executors to uh, go up to uh, the penthouse and to pick up the manuscript, which I did. And they said, oh, by the way, there's another manuscript too, some kind of German thing. And I said, okay, I'll take it. Uh, well, that other manuscript ended up being immensely important. It was a complete manuscript of the Concordancia Caritatis uh, of Ulrich of Lilienfeld. And this was the last of the great typological manuscripts. And she, of course, became interested in this because in addition to the Old Testament types, believe it or not, uh, there were two scenes from the animal world. So, oh. so, so it's an amazing so, uh, horses again. Uh, encyclopedia of what animals got connected with what scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are only about a half a dozen of these things. Mm -hmm. And so I was very happy to get that. I mean, it's a 15th century uh, manuscript. Wonderful. So that was a real bonus. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, we did very well. Uh, yeah, that's with great. Pack. That's great. So that was one of the high points, you know, going up there and actually being able to pick up the manuscript. Um, you know, another thing that, of course, the Morgan, it's here in New York. It's an institution in New York. But those of us who've known the Morgan for many, many, many years, um, I mean, I first came in 1970, I think, and you who worked there for 50 years, it's as a physical space, it's changed a lot too. And I'm wondering, I mean, now there's a Renzo Piano building, it's no longer John Pierpont Morgan's private residence, or it is that, but it's also something else. I wonder, and now it's not the Morgan Library, it's the Morgan Museum and Library. I wonder if you wanna talk a little bit about how you think these changes, what you think of these changes, and how you think it's affected the institution over the years. Broad question, but maybe you can say, have a few comments. Yes, well, of course, I, I was there for almost every uh, expansion and alteration, as you can imagine. And one pattern seems to be that there are always those who are against it. You know, when the garden court, which looks sort of like a greenhouse, was done, uh, people were furious. And then when they decided to take that down and, and come up with the so-called Morgan Campus, where Renzo Piano reconfigured everything, people were bemoaning now this, this uh, previous addition. Uh, uh, so what, meanwhile, uh, behind the background scene here was that one had to try to make the Morgan more visible. And this, this is a pattern that you see with other institutions. Right. The Walters Art Gallery is not the Walters it's Art. It's the Walters Art Museum it's Because people now. thought maybe it was a place you go to buy something. Exactly. Uh, and people had, oh, the Morgan Library. Or the library, just it, a place just, to just, study, not a place to go. Right. Yeah. So, and, and this changed from when I came there as a kind of sleepy, laid-back institution. You didn't always even have, ex, you know, exhibitions. Uh, and then under Rice Camp, we uh, went into the sort of blockbuster 
era insofar as the Morgan could do something like that. So there were two fundamental shows that really changed our, our presence under Charles Rice Camp. And which were they? Uh, and one um, was Michelangelo drawings. You can imagine, you know, from Windsor Castle. So you can imagine that had a, a lot of draw. But one show that did not that want to have a large draw, one would have thought, but it ended up becoming a household word. And these were the uh, drawings of, of Holbein hmm. that we got from the Royal Collection. Uh, and of course, at that time, you had these uh, corporate sponsors, and they had these reproductions of these Holbein uh, figures on the sides of the buses. They had hmm. the banners all over Manhattan. So that kind of publicity uh, brought in so many people that actually you had people queuing up around the block going up Madison wow. Avenue. So those were two uh, of mm -hmm. the blockbuster shows. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, uh, then everything uh, uh, began to be focused on you know, getting people in there, have, and then we became really more an exhibition institution. So now we have all these exhibitions going up, and part of the things that uh, that motivated the new Renzo piano was to give more exhibition space because that, that was the, right. the driving force. Uh, so that the, some of the research aspects uh, uh, were certainly less prominent because way back, of course, we had many more lectures. Sir Arpidurna Sassian gave the first lectures on Armenian manuscripts in this country. You had Panofsky giving lectures there. All these people, yeah, so you had really uh, uh, a great emphasis on the scholarly mm -hmm. uh, part. But for visitors of the Morgan today, too, um, I mean, they can still go to these wonderful rooms from the historic mansion um, and from the early 20th century. I'm told you have your favorite room in the Morgan, but I don't know what it is. Do you have your favorite room in the Morgan? Well, well, my favorite rooms are, are the McKim, because I've spent uh, many, many uh, years researching the hidden symbolism uh, of the paintings. I mean, that was all. And the McKim, that's part the, of the original the, Morgan Right, that, that was the thing that was Which called. visitors can go to. Oh, yes, and, that's the, and of course, that's the great piece. I mean, if you look at the Renzo piano architecture, it's not uh, distinguished from a period point of view. But the Morgan Library building, you know, is a wonderful manifestation of the Gilded Age kind of architecture, the Beaux-Arts. Uh, and those period rooms are, are absolutely fascinating. People walk in there and you can see uh, from the looks on their faces, they're just odd that there's anything like this in, in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was uh, in part uh, because the uh, architect was McKim of McKim, Eden White, and they felt that the great sources for the so-called American Renaissance architecture were to be found in Rome. Thus, Morgan contributed, I think, $100,000 for helping to found the American Academy so that American architects, painters, and so on could go right. there and study. And that's why so many of the architectural features of the building uh, are based on Roman prototypes. Right. For example, the, one, of, one of my favorite rooms is the room uh, where the bookcases go all the way up to the ceiling, uh, where you have this. And isn't there a kind of balcony that you there, can go there to? There is a balcony, there and, too, yes. right, and there's a hidden staircase yes. uh, that uh, grants you access. Mm -hmm. Well, once uh, uh, it became apparent that the ceiling was based on the, one of the ceilings of the Villa Farnesina, which Agostino Chigi uh, had commissioned, it, it got that nickname of the Farnesina because the Farnesis already had a palace. So after Kiji passed, uh, they bought his place and it became the little Farnese. I see. But anyway, on the ceiling, uh, there is a kind of horoscope because the constellations are all represented uh, as they were thought to be on the birth date of Agostino Kiji, who was, of course, uh, a famous Italian Renaissance banker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's this kinship between Kiji and so on. And in fact, the Kiji arms are on the wall in Morgan's study. You know, the, the, the little mounds, those are the Kiji Yeah, arms. so I mean, so our listeners should be encouraged to visit the Morgan 
as an architectural site too, and oh, yes, it is. part of the Gilded Age. Um, it is, and, and, and it's really uh, one of the supreme masterpieces of McKim, of McKim, Mead & White. Right, right. Um, I, of course, you've been retired now for two years, and I just wanted to end our podcast today by talking a little bit about your project in retirement, which I think has to do with what you call in one article um, chicanery, and which leads us back to the Spanish forger and um, hoaxes and forgeries. Um, maybe you could say just a few words about what you're doing with this collection that, if I understand it right, you formed. Yes, well, uh, uh, of course, uh, I'm indebted to you because you uh, were kind enough to come up with the great idea of showing uh, most of it here. Uh, and indeed, I have to tell you that this was, uh, for me, landmark show number two. Oh, well, there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I believe, uh, and I, I have been saying this, but no one's challenged it, that it was the first exhibition ever given to manuscript forgery in general, as opposed to being on the Spanish forger. Mm -hmm. There have been great shows on forgeries, for example, at the uh, British Museum was one some years ago. Which, when, which is a marvelous thing, and you should look at the catalog, it goes from ancient Egypt to modern times. And there were a few manuscripts, but this was the first show ever given to a broad, uh, uh, you know, a manuscript forgery in general. And indeed, it was more than just you know, European ones. I've included um, uh, forgeries of Persian manuscripts, Indian manuscripts, Mexican, Mexican. manuscripts. Um, Coptic, uh, Coptic uh, manuscripts, uh, and there are wonderful stories to be told uh, about all of these. It's part of a plan. I hope someone does it after me to come <laughs> to come up, you know, with a database on forgeries. Because if there was a database that really had pictures of all these forgeries, you could see what the styles are. Mm -hmm. And of course, this all goes back to my initial, shall we say, embarrassment not having recognized the, the Spanish forger. Because once you recognize the style, you don't have to look at the texture-picture relationship because you know that the style is, is bogus. So just think if you had a, a website that you could go to and just have picture after picture of forgery styles, this would be a very uh, useful tool. And also, if you get down to the nitty-gritty to see, well, how do you tell something as a forgery? What other well, we should, I should interrupt you here to say that we should reassure our listeners that really um, it is not uh, common to mistake a medieval manuscript for a forgery or vice versa. They, it's very different from the painting world where um, this is really an issue. I think you're, you're, one of the things your collection shows is, you know, how um, many of these people weren't even forgers. They were what in the 19th century we call facsimileous. That's right. So um, that there is a, this line between, uh, you know, making copies because you didn't have color exactly. photography. However, what has happened is that some of these copies are so good Right, they can right. be sold as if they were original. Well, but I think that. Uh, but, but I think you're rarely. absolutely right. It should be pointed out that forgery in our field uh, is relatively rare com compared to, to other fields. But I wanted to alert listeners to this ongoing project you have and this very, very large collection and, and quite interesting collection you have. Maybe we'll do another podcast um, one of these days just on the collection. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, but I think that the uh, uh, other uh, issues that are raised, uh, especially in our time where the definition of art has become so uh, broad that it, it includes everything. Concludes bananas on it the wall in yes, Miami. Uh, uh, at extravagant prices. <laughs> right, uh, right. Uh, more than my collection is probably worth. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, some of the interesting questions uh, uh, are raised. And one of the uh, fundamental ones was raised by John Ashbery, uh, the late poet, art critic. And he raised the question, which is an interesting one, can a forgery be a work of art? Now, he did a review in 1978 of the Spanish Forger show, and he became puzzled. 
because he found himself reacting to a, a couple of the paintings in that show as if they were works of art. So, which they are, indeed. Which indeed they? they are. Certainly the Spanish forger. Right, and so he concluded, yes, a forgery can be uh, uh, appreciated as a work of art and as a forgery. Thank you, Bill. I think we're going to wind up today. It was great. Um, I've enjoyed listening to you. I learned things I didn't know, like the cobbler shoe origins. Um, and I'm sure everyone will be interested in your 50-year career at the Morgan, which you've sort of um, touched on some highlights for us today. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, until next time, then. Well, I thank you very much, and I have to end also by saying that I'm also indebted to you uh, and your, your business. Uh, one of the things that started me as a book collector was that I realized that much of our history is based on the written word, the documents. Uh, and therefore, manuscripts and their illustrations are really keys, so they're really fundamental documents. So I was very pleased that one of your uh, aspects in the business is not only you know, to focus on beautiful illumination, but also on the text manuscripts. I believe books, all manuscripts, are living things. Exactly. And it is the experience, as clearly you believe the same thing. Right, so and so that's part of the, of the whole thing, and I'm so pleased that you have this section that deals with the textual manuscripts, because they are immensely important. Right. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Until next time. I'm Keegan Gebford, Vice President of Les Illuminaires. Up next, we'll be in New York for the International Antiquarian Book Fair from March 5th to March 8th. We'll also be exhibiting at Tefaf Maastricht from March 7th to March 15th. Hope to see you there. You can reach us online through our website, laysonlumineer.com, or through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You are always welcome to visit one of our galleries in New York, Chicago, or Paris during our exhibitions, or make an appointment with one of our specialists. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>